This morning is in Mark chapter 10. We're studying another of the important scenes of, in the Gospels involving the Apostle Peter as we've continued in our, our sermon series in 1 Peter. Uh, the text is on page six, uh, 716 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. There's also, of course, a sermon outline on pages 8 and 9 in the bulletin to help us follow along. In Mark 10, we're with Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. His ministry in the Galilee is finished. He's heading for Jerusalem, journeying towards the events of Holy Week, the cross and the resurrection. And the broader section of this part of Mark really focuses on the nature of true discipleship, what it really means to be a Jesus follower and to be his disciple. Jesus is forcing the crowds and the disciples and all who will listen to go deeper and to see that self-denial and suffering and humility and having faith like a child are some of the requirements of any who would seek to follow Jesus. I've listed some references there in the sermon outline, even some connections to First Peter. But in this section also, Jesus is saying this, this idea of suffering is not just to be my disciple, it's what I'm going to live out. As he was predicting his own death and resurrection at least three times, showing how he will lead his people in humility and suffering in the midst of that. And even in this section, the Pharisees are talking about discipleship. They, of course, are anti-disciples. And so they want to test Jesus by asking about the issue of divorce that's the sort of, uh, that begins here at the beginning of Mark chapter 10. And their question betrays a certain perspective on discipleship that suggests, basically, what can I get away with? Right? Is it lawful to divorce? In other words, how sort of unfaithful can I be in human relationships and still be a follower of God? What's the least that I can do and still be considered faithful? You know, they think they've laid a good trap. Of course, Jesus instead puts forward this compelling vision of, of human marriage and God's intent for it that really gets to the heart of the issue. So all of these questions in these last few chapters in Mark are about the nature of true discipleship. And they set the stage for us for the sudden appearance of a man who's a potential disciple. Will he follow or will he walk away? And what does the encounter of him and Jesus mean for Peter and the Twelve, and by extension, for all of us? So we'll take up the story here in Mark 10, starting in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, 
but not with God. All things are possible with God. And Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that we come now to your word and that you have promised to speak uh, to us through it, and that it's your words given to us and your spirit living inside of us to lead us into truth. And so we ask that you would do that now in this moment, that you would feed us from your word, that you would strengthen and nourish our faith. Bless our time together, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we pick up the account, we meet, we meet this nameless man who runs up to Jesus with a burning question. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We don't know other details about the man other than this account and the parallel accounts that are in Matthew and Luke. According to Mark, he was wealthy. Matthew mentions that he's a young man. Luke tells us that he's a ruler, a kind of magistrate or a prince or a highly ranked person. And so thus, he has become known through church history as the rich young ruler. The title that's really an accurate one. And his question is an interesting one. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question. How can I be saved? How can I live forever? But immediately we notice two things in this question. He's asking for an action. He's asking for something that he can do. It's a bit unclear if he's asking for one great deed that he can do or or what his lifestyle must be in order for him to uh, gain eternal life. And second, it's interesting that he uses the word inherit to speak about eternal life. To inherit something means to be given it as a gift, not to earn it. He's speaking in the normal way about being an, inher- being an heir, receiving an inheritance, not winning or earning something, but being given it. And so the man seems to be asking, if we would summarize a bit, what can he do? Either one great deed, or how must he live his life, or both, in order that he would be given the gift of eternal life. And when we think about it, there isn't really anything anyone can do to inherit anything. So it betrays, I think, a certain kind of view of God. The man thinks that somehow he can gain God's favor through his actions in order to receive the gift of eternal life. Though, of course, it's expressed in various different ways. This is the kind of the promise of the man-made religions of the world, right? This idea of connecting with the deity, somehow gaining a blessing by doing what that deity wants. Humans kind of put that deity in their debt somehow to gain favor or blessing, right? That's the idea of the religions of the world, basically, And Jesus, as he does so often, doesn't answer the question directly. Verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Jesus responds with a question about his own identity. 
as if to say, do you think I'm good like God is good? Or are you just trying to call me that? Is this just a bit of flattery? And then Jesus takes the man to the Ten Commandments, specifically Commandments 5 through 9. Now, for those of us who know the story, we might have imagined something else. The man's sin problem is clearly connected to wealth. Idolatry, greed, covetousness, that sort of thing. So we might have expected Jesus to take the man to commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me, or to commandment number ten, you shall not covet. Interesting that Jesus doesn't do that. He keeps the conversation going in a direction that this man understands that's comfortable for him, that makes it feel like Jesus is is on his turf or something. And so the man responds very, very positively. All these I've kept since I was a boy. Verse 20. And we think, of course, really? Right? You've never lied. You've never disobeyed your parents. And again, Jesus doesn't argue the point. He doesn't quibble about the details of the man's behavior. He continues in the man's direction. Then the rich young ruler, by his own admission, is saying this. I've kept the law. I've kept it. All these I've kept since I was a boy. But I'm still looking for something else. I'm still looking for the one thing I can do to be guaranteed an inheritance of eternal life. I mean, I've done it all already, but I want to be sure. I'm looking for a guarantee. Right? This is how I think we should read this. This man thinks he's the star. He thinks he's the best potential disciple that has ever walked up to Jesus. And we see his pride and his arrogance and his foolishness, don't we? And so in that moment, Jesus cuts to the heart. Verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. It's as if Jesus said, okay, I'll tell you the one thing you must do. Okay, let's, let's, let's stay on your terms. There's one thing that you lack. What you must do to inherit eternal life is to sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. On your terms, to answer your question, this is what you must do. And this may sound sort of harsh. It may sound sort of legalistic to us. What about just believe in Christ? It's not the, you know, our standard evangelical kind of answer. But it's not Jesus being harsh. Jesus looked at him and Jesus loved him. And Jesus is being loving and gracious. And Jesus loved him enough to say, all this wealth is hurting your soul. Your arrogance and your pride, you think that you're super spiritual, you're flattering me, you think you're qualified to gain a spot in the kingdom, that is what is killing you. And if you can't let go of your possessions and follow me, if you can do that, then you will have treasure in heaven and that will break the grip of the world's goods on you and your own pride. And if you can't do that, then you can't follow me. What does the man do? Of course, in this case, the man's face fell and he went away sad. He was asked to choose between his wealth and following Jesus. He chose his wealth. We only hope, of course, that later on in his life, some 
some, at some point, he came back to Jesus. He understood this. He abandoned the idol of money. But the point is simple. Jesus is saying, your stuff may be killing your soul. Your stuff, your wealth, your security, and all that you place into it, it may be killing your soul. And we, of course, don't face this kind of decision so starkly in such a contrast as this, right? Choose God or choose all your stuff. And Jesus, of course, is speaking to this one man. He doesn't call all of us to sell all that we have and give to the poor in exactly the same way. But the point is clear. You can't serve God and money. Many Christians around the world face this exact dilemma every day, even if we don't face it here. Many do. I saw part of a documentary about, uh, recently about the church in Bangladesh, a very poor country in Southeast Asia, and how in many cases there's a similar sort of economic pressure that's placed upon those who want to convert and who want to follow Jesus in that country. There's a small minority of Christians in the country. Many times their businesses are hurt, their families cut them off, they face real economic pressure. They face this exact choice. Will you choose to follow Jesus or will you keep your stuff? Well, the disciples, of course, are astonished at the words of Jesus. We might be surprised if we hadn't heard the story before too. But the text emphasizes again and again how shocked and amazed the disciples really are. Verse 23 Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This is not obviously what the disciples expected from Jesus. Among the people of Jesus' day, there was an expectation that wealth really signified the blessing of God. And thus, wealthy people were tend to be viewed as those who were more spiritual, who God was blessing in that way. And so the strength of Jesus' words here to sort of turn that idea onto its head... And say, someone who's rich is not automatically in the kingdom of God. In fact, it's the opposite. Those who trust in riches, it's, it's impossible for them to get in the kingdom. It's shocking to the disciples. At a deeper level, I think, as much as the disciples had heard Jesus teaching about the free offer of the gospel, we, we have to consider how the disciples might have viewed this man. Right? This man was obviously living right according to external appearances. He was keeping God's commandments at a high level since his childhood. He had the blessing of wealth to show for it. This isn't the guy you want to let slip away. This guy is serious disciple material, right? He's rich. He's upright. He grew up in a good home. He probably knew his catechism questions. He was highly ranked and important, a ruler, an important person. Did I mention that he was rich? Like, this is... A guy coming to Jesus saying, I want to follow you. I want to go beyond and above the call of duty in service to God. I want to find out the one thing I can do in order to put God in my debt, in order to receive eternal life. I want to be your disciple. And Jesus lets him walk. 
Jesus offends him and sends him away. So the disciples are asking, well, who then can be saved? If this guy can't be saved, how can we be saved? I'm just a, I was a tax collector. I'm poor. Or I was just a fisherman. If, if this guy can't do it, who can? And the answer, of course, is that God can. God alone is good, as Jesus has said. Furthermore, by human effort, salvation is completely impossible. And this man is caught up in human effort. The view of man-made religion, that I can put a deity in my debt by my good behavior, that I can arrange this kind of transaction with the divine, is tempting and completely wrong. And something had to be done, had to be acted out in history for God to be reconciled with men and women and boys and girls, and that's exactly what Jesus did. And we're moving there toward the cross right now. Jesus is the one who acted then did the impossible thing, the thing that was only possible for God to do in order for men and women and boys and girls to be saved. So we can see now the wheels are turning in the disciples' heads. Right? If life is not about money, but about following Jesus, then what remains for us? Verse 28. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Peter makes the statement that begs for an answer. We have left everything to follow you. We left behind are fishing boats. And I think the focus of the sermon is really kind of here, as we think about Peter and his life. Peter had walked away from his business. He left his nets and his boat. He left everything behind to follow Jesus. He's made the opposite choice that the rich young ruler made. Peter has experienced God doing the impossible thing in his life. And drawing near to him a sinful man and saving him from his sins and changing the direction of his life. And so the question for Peter is, okay, but what about me? What about us who followed you and left behind everything else? And we might wonder here, uh, you know, as Peter's speaking, what's the mix here of self-interest and faith? What's the mixture of selfishness and also just, just the question? I mean, there seems to be a way to ask this in faith. Uh, There seems to be a way to ask it in terms of what am I going to get out of this deal, right? In terms of a transaction, what will our reward be? And the interesting thing is that Jesus doesn't criticize the question or or the comment. He doesn't chide Peter for what might be selfishness. Instead, Jesus gives one of those statements that should make us listen closely for what is coming next. He says, I tell you the truth. Or truly, I say to you, listen closely here. Here is a great promise. Again, in verse 29. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, 
eternal life. Jesus uses a double negative here. No one who has left will fail to receive. So no one will be, will be left out. No one will miss out on what is coming. We can turn it around. It makes more sense to us in English to say it like this. Everyone who has left behind home, brothers, sisters, mother, you know, the whole list, for Jesus and for the sake of the gospel will receive. Everyone who has left those things behind will receive. Jesus doesn't shy away from giving such a promise of reward. And if we think about it, Jesus actually talked about rewards of the kingdom often. Maybe more than we do today. Of course, we want to be clear that we don't do things in religious service to gain rewards. That's the error of the rich young man. And clearly, we would reject the idea of a prosperity gospel. Again, that's the error of the rich young man. And yet, Jesus continues to talk about, and we think about, how many times does he present discipleship in sort of this cost-benefit analysis kind of way. Consider the cost and look at the rewards. Think about what path you're on. Live with the future in mind, and not just the future here, but the real future, the promise of the future, of future grace. And this text, I think, challenges us to sort of go there in terms of thinking carefully about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Life is an investment to be chosen wisely, wisely, not just passively accepted or just trudged through. And Jesus gives us this amazing promise, which I think should be even more shocking and astonishing than his statements about camels and the eye of the needle and all of that. Let's break the promise down a little bit as we think about applying it to our own lives today. What do you gain in this life by following Jesus? Jesus is saying that everyone who has left behind significant things and people in order to follow him will receive a hundred times as much in this present age. And what does that really mean? It doesn't mean literally that we have a hundred houses. Obviously, Jesus isn't talking about the gaining and hoarding of material wealth. What does it mean? Well, I think a major part of the fulfillment of this promise is to be seen in the blessing of being part of the church of Jesus Christ. Multiple places in the New Testament, the church is called the family of God. God is our Father in heaven. Jesus is our elder brother. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have mothers and fathers in the faith. We pass on our faith to the children here. If, Jesus, if following Jesus causes you to leave behind your family, either literally or figuratively, here's a promise that you have a new family. You have a whole new set of relationships in the church, both locally and globally. And the promise here is that those relationships can be rich and full, like a family, the kind of family that grows and loves and supports and encourages and invests in one another. What I want to emphasize this morning is this is not something that the local church can kind of program and manage as much as it's a deeper spiritual reality that we first need to recognize and embrace. Jesus relativizes the nuclear family. When people came to him and said, your mother and your, and your brothers are here, Jesus said, who is my mother and my brothers? He said, those people who are here listening to the word of God. Jesus relativized the nuclear family and said there's a new family 
than in the family of God. And there's a deep spiritual reality in that that goes against the grain of our American individualism. Deeply, it goes against the grain of our American individualism. Many of us know the difficulty of leaving behind, either literally or figuratively, unbelieving family members in order to follow Christ. I think this promise is specifically for you. God has provided the rich blessing in this life of fellowship with a whole new set of people that you wouldn't otherwise know. And especially in our fragmented and transient culture today, the church is to be that kind of blessing, that kind of gift, that kind of family for people who are here for a year or two or for people who are here and have grown up here or for for everyone. The church is to be the family of God, a new family united by belief in Christ, called by Jesus to a radical kind of love and hospitality and care for each member. So when one hurts, all hurt. We weep with those who weep. We we rejoice with those who rejoice. The church is called to this unique kind of sharing of life and community that declares to the world that the love of Christ is real and is in our midst. It's part of what we gain in this life by following Jesus. There are many other things, of course, that we could describe, but, but that one seems to be most clearly in view here. What does it cost you to be a follower of Jesus in this life? Lest we think that all is smooth sailing in following Jesus, a life of rewards and simplicity, Jesus throws in the phrase there at the end, right, in verse, uh, um, in verse 30, and with them... So in in receiving a hundred times as many of all of these things, and with them, persecutions. This is the cost part of the cost-benefit analysis, the calculation, right? Jesus made it clear that there's a cost involved in following him. It's not free. It's not easy to follow Jesus. Salvation is free. It's the greatest gift. But Jesus said many times that living as a Christian, following him, is not easy The world, the flesh, and the devil, you know, ourselves, we want to fight against that. We don't want to follow him. And so if it seems easy for you to follow Jesus, then I would challenge you to really consider, are you really following Jesus or are you following yourself? Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. That differs in terms of the kind of persecution that we think of in terms of, you know, against the church all over the globe. But our society makes promises that it can't keep, and even our evangelical Christian subculture seems to buy into that to a degree and says that you can have it all. You can have a mostly comfortable life here in America, living the American dream of mostly doing what you want, and Jesus is on your side too. And I don't want to, I don't want to say that in a sort of cynical way, but we have to think about it a bit. Jesus promises that persecutions will come along with the blessings of following him. And even in our lives, I think the two go hand in hand. We don't seek out difficulty. We're not looking for persecution. But we will be opposed in various ways as we seek to faithfully follow Jesus. Persecution will come. Difficulty will come. We're going against the grain. We're looking for the narrow way, and broad is the way where... Everyone else seems to be going. 
And so even more specifically then, if we, if we see that the church is in view here, the, if the relationship of the church are the gift that's promised here, we can see that living out a commitment to the radical life of church community is not easy either. Right? The church is a place of differences of opinion and lifestyle, multiple religious, ethnic, and cultural backgrounds, personality conflicts, various deeply held biblical convictions, opposing viewpoints, careless words, misunderstandings, real and imagined hurts. The church will always be a place in which our sin is revealed. And part of the persecution promised here comes from loving the church and seeking the best for the church and putting aside our own agenda and being a part of a body, laying aside our American individualism and living for other people and expressing that here in the life of the church. That requires what we would, you know, what falls under the category of persecution. It's hard. It's difficult. Jesus says that it's worth it. The church is a gift to each member, that we have responsibilities to one another, to repent, to forgive, to love each other deeply from the heart, to bear one another's burdens, to rebuke, to encourage. All of the things that we're called to, all of the one another's in Scripture, are to be lived out in the life of the church. So on balance then, as we're reading this passage, if we were to end it here, we would be weighing in this life, we would be weighing a hundredfold of these blessings that Jesus promises and lists there against the persecutions that will also come. So even that, I think, might be enough for us to choose to follow Jesus, knowing that he cares for us, knowing that he loves us, that he promises to provide for his children, even in the midst of suffering and persecution. But, right, there's life to come. What do you gain in the life to come by being a follower of Jesus? Mr. Donovan said to Indiana Jones... And they're talking about the rumor of the Holy Grail. Think of it, Dr. Jones, eternal life. You know, Indy says back cynically, an old man's dream. Donovan says, every man's dream. Think of eternal life. A promise that no one can take away. A promise that doesn't depend on your ability or behavior. A promise that's ironclad, guaranteed to all who believe. Eternal life. Freely offered. And that promise changes everything about how we live this life. Because everything in this life is nothing in that one. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? If he were here, Peter would tell you it's worth it to follow Jesus. He reminds us of that in various ways in First Peter. Jesus' promises aren't in vain. Jesus says he's telling us the truth. No one who has left these things for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come, eternal life. I remember considering these words as a 24-year-old 
living in the city of Pech, Hungary, on a three-year adventure, leaving behind all that I had known and what I felt like was God's obedience, was obedience to God's call on my life, seeking clumsily to tell of the Savior to Hungarian college students. It's worth it. It's more than worth it. Many of you know and remember Julie Soltis, who tells the story of sudden widowhood and then leaving behind her grown children and little grandchildren to move to Austria to invest in a ministry to refugees fleeing from suffering, war, persecution, most from countries where there are no churches to offer them hospitality and to offer them the gospel. How many children does she have that she's gained in obedience by leaving behind, for a season at least, the children and grandchildren that she had here in America? Church history is full of stories of those who follow Jesus in radical ways, crossing boundaries, leaving behind all that they had known. The calling is the same for us today. It may look different in our lives, of course, but Jesus calls us to follow him. That's where it starts, to follow him, to trust him, to invest now for the real future, to believe his promises that everything that leaving everything else behind for him and for the gospel is the best path. Consider this passage. Consider what it means for you this week. Ask him to show you. He will. He promises to. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we are thankful this morning for amazing promises, for the gift of eternal life that we can't that we can't imagine, that we can't compare, that we can't describe hardly, except what you have shown to us. And we thank you that you are with us in this life, in persecutions and with blessings. We pray that you would use these words to encourage our faith, even this week, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.